Thanks for helping us this morning, kids. We're going to talk about that this morning, grudges and guilt, as we finish out the story of Joseph. Now, it has been a long meandering through the book of Genesis this summer, has it not? We've started out the story learning about how Scripture is first and foremost a story. Remember? That Scripture is not just a book of rules or a book of heroes or, for us adults, a bunch of neatly stacked truths on a shelf. But the scripture, the story, is an adventure story about a young hero coming from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It is a love story about a brave prince who leaves his home to search for the one he loves. And so after marinating in the story of Genesis this summer, I think we can all agree, based on the craziness we saw in Abraham's family, that it is definitely not a book of heroes. Because what we have seen in the book of Genesis is that these people, this special people of God, is a bunch of broken people, just like you and me. But they have been pursued faithfully and persistently by God so that God might redeem and restore and renew them and all of creation. So God's pursuit of us continues from Genesis all the way to the end of the book, all the way to Revelation. But today we are going to finish out the book of Genesis itself. So if you want to turn there, you can. We're going to be kind of tootling around in a bunch of chapters today. But we're going to start in chapter 42. Now, if you remember from last week, Joseph got bailed out of jail and got that major promotion. Remember? Now from being guy in jail to second in command, running the whole country. He interpreted those God dreams and he took action. So he is busy saving Egypt, saving the world, that whole thing. And Joseph is embodying the dream of God, and he is implementing that dream with his own imagination. Meanwhile, his brothers, the ten dudes that so lovingly chucked him into a pit and then sold him into slavery out of jealousy and disgust, out of their inability to see Joseph's dreams for what they were as God's dreams, they're not doing so hot. While Joseph is in Egypt, they are still back in Canaan, and in Joseph's absence... Nothing has changed. They are still men that are marked with violence and self-seeking, and they are utterly resistant to God's dreams. But now, in addition to them already being evil and wicked, murderous men, uh, they now live under the cloud of guilt, under the weight of guilt, just like poor Callie this morning, right? They live under the weight of guilt, under this deep sense of hopelessness, particularly when that famine finally rolls in, right? Now, this whole concept, our kids helped us visualize today the weight of guilt on, in our lives. But it's not just some silly illustration for children, right? So these researchers from Princeton and the University of Waterloo, which I have no idea where that is, did an actual research project to study the physical sensation of living with guilt. Now, the fancy word for this is embodied cognition, the idea that what we think and feel has a physical impact on our bodies, okay? And so the study, it's fascinating. The study had these people, two groups. So one people, they had them sit and just like think about like their favorite food or something. And the other group, they had them gather together. And I want you to think about every bad thing you've ever done. Doesn't that sound so awesome? It's like when you lay in bed at night and can't sleep and you remember, oh, Tyler Ash, the kid I kicked in the face in fifth grade. I'm such a horrible person. I can't believe I did that. Right? Am I the only person that's ever done that? Like you lay in bed at night and you think of all the bad things. you've Yeah, that is what they had these people do. And so after they had had them like dwell upon 
their badness. Then they asked him questions, and they came to discover that these people who had dwelt upon all of their bad things and were feeling downright guilty felt physically heavier in their bodies. And then they had those same poor people go and do some various tasks, like go help this lady carry her groceries, go give this guy some change, go help somebody do whatever. And they discovered that the people who were feeling guilty and who were feeling heavy described those simple tasks as being physically more difficult to accomplish, okay? Because when you are living under the weight of guilt, it's hard to function. You can do it technically, but not very well, right? And so these brothers are living under the weight of sin. Unconfessed sin and guilt is so contrary to God's design for us that living with it has physical consequences. That's scary, isn't it? Now these brothers are struggling. And as the famine has made it worse, because of all places, they have to go to Egypt to get food. Now, let's be clear. The brothers don't have any anticipation. What if we bump into Joseph while we're there? No, they're pretty sure he's dead, okay? They're pretty sure he's dead or he's a slave in the field. But the fact is they still have to go to the country to which they sent their own brother. Now, imagine the guilt and the weight that they were feeling, right? So we're going to read a little bit smatterings here and there, and then I'm just going to kind of describe the story as we go. But chapter 42, verse 6, let's read. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had had about them. Da, da, da. Like the tension in the story, right? It's the ultimate showdown, but one side is completely oblivious, right? And we don't really know what's going on in Joseph's head and in his heart. Like when he sees his brothers just, does he bear a grudge? Is he angry? Is he just sick inside when he sees these guys? Well, we don't know because scripture doesn't tell us what he's thinking and feeling, but we do know what he does on the outside. And frankly, Joseph's kind of a jerk because he says to them, you're not here for food. You're here to spy. You're here to do whatever. And I'm going to throw you in jail um, to let you think about that for a while, right? And the only way you're going to get out of here and come back for more food is if you bring your youngest brother, Benjamin. So he throws him in jail so they can think about they're spying, which he knows they're not spies, right? It kind of looks like a grudge to me. I don't know. It kind of looks like Joseph has a grudge, right? Like a, how do you like it? That's exactly my cell. Would you, how do you like that cell? Is it comfortable, right? But is it a grudge or is it a test? Is Joseph trying to explore, are my brothers the same evil, wicked, self-possessed, self-promoting, self-protecting guys they always were, or have they changed? Because Joseph understands true reconciliation cannot happen without true repentance, right? So meanwhile, as Joseph is contemplating all this, the brothers sit in jail, and my, how the tables have turned, have they not? So keep reading, verse 18, it says this, 
On the third day, they only had to sit in jail for three days. Joseph was merciful in this regard. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are imprisoned. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they all agreed to do so. But they said to one another, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother, to Joseph. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not wrong the boy, but you would not listen? Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The brothers, their whole lives have been defined by that moment, right? That moment when they threw him in the pit, that act of violent, jealous rage, and then selling him into slavery. They are utterly bound by an unforgiven past. They are immobilized. They cannot even move because of their guilt. They are driven by anxiety in every way. And so because, as we have seen, guilt, unconfessed, sin, unconfessed, is a heavy load to bear. It colors our vision. It distorts everything we see. It malforms us into bitter, fearful, sensitive, paranoid shells of who we once were as our sin sours inside of us. And now, these poor sin-sick guys have to trudge home to their dad, Jacob, and tell them, oh, by the way, not only is Joseph dead in their minds, but now uh, Simeon's locked in jail, and we can't get more food unless you send baby Benjamin down the road to Egypt. Not an ideal message to bring home, gentlemen. Not ideal, right? For the brothers and for Jacob, who is now devastated anew at the loss, not just of Joseph, but of, now of Simeon and the potential threat he sees towards Benjamin, the promise isn't even mentioned. The dream? The dream? Where is it? The promise is dead on the vine. The chosen family of God is dropping like flies, and death seems to be getting the final word. So these brothers carry on with heavy hearts and they eat all the food that they got in Egypt. And all the while, keep in mind, while they're eating their food and feeding their families, Simeon is still in jail. No one cares about poor Simeon. He's just sitting in jail. And all the while, Benjamin is getting more jumpy by the day, right? As you see the barrels of food getting lower and he's like, oh, I'm going to have to go to Egypt, right? And finally, as the famine persists, the food runs out, and Jacob says to his brothers, pretending in ignorance, right? He goes, hey, guys, go back to Egypt. We need some more food. Go ahead. Go on. And he's like, yeah, Dad, about that. You have to send Benjamin, or we are going to be killed. We have to take him. And Jacob is just a wreck, because Benjamin is the only son he has left from his beloved wife, Rachel. Right? He's already lost Joseph. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin, and he is devastated. But Judah... Judah, remember Judah? He was the guy that said, hey, let's not kill the kid. Why don't we sell him into slavery? He was a real gem, right? Judah speaks up in chapter 43, verse 8. He says this, Then Judah said to his father Israel, Jacob, Send the boy with me and let us be on our way so that we may live and not die, you and we and also our little ones. I myself will be surety for him. You can hold me accountable for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. 
Hold up. Something has changed. Judah, he was not a good dude. Do you remember Judah? He was the one that said, hey, let's make some money off the kid. Sell him into slavery. And while Joseph was off in Egypt, Judah continued to commit horrific crimes. He was awful and abusive and deceitful against his uh, daughter-in-law, Tamar. That's quite a story. Judah was the guy who treated everybody in his life like a pawn in his game. Hey, get rid of the favorite brother so I can gain dominion, right? Get rid of that annoying daughter-in-law so I can keep my wealth. Other people were not people to him. They were chess pieces in his own scheme. But something has changed in, in Judah. He stands before his father, offering himself, his very life, as a guarantee for Benjamin. His sin brought him to his knees and changed him from this pawn-playing, self-promoting hustler into a broken, humble man willing to sacrifice himself for his father. And so with Judah's promise, Jacob releases Benjamin to travel to Egypt. And when they walk in the throne room and they Joseph sees Benjamin for the first time, he about loses it in front of everybody. And it's, this is the funniest, one of my favorite parts of scripture because it's so dramatic, like hilariously dramatic. The text actually tells us Joseph is overcome with love and affection for his brother and flees from the room that they might not see his tears, right? And he goes into a side room and he cries. And when I see this story, I'm sure it was a very touching moment, but when I imagine it in my head, I totally imagine the scene in Cinderella where the, where the stepsisters tear up her dress and she like runs out to the garden and throws herself on a couch and cries like that's how I imagine Joseph in this scene like utterly dramatic right but he wipes his eyes he goes and he cries and he wipes his eyes and he comes back in and he maintains the facade he still doesn't tell them who he is he still doesn't trust that they've actually changed right and so even as Joseph throws this huge feast for his brothers he is still plotting another test this time with Benjamin do you remember the story There's no nice way to put it. Joseph intentionally frames Benjamin, accusing him of theft, and then tells all the brothers, your your brother Benjamin, he's a liar, he's a thief, I'm throwing him in prison. Done deal, right? It's almost as if Joseph is asking, will you guys throw yet another brother under the bus to save your skins? You already threw me under the bus. You threw poor Simeon under the bus and let him rot in jail. Now how about Benjamin? What kind of men are you? answer no judah that man uh, once again the man transformed from manipulator self-preserving pawn abuser to humble selfless man he steps forward and he pleads with joseph he says jacob cannot survive the loss of another son and so judah begs he says now therefore please let me your servant Remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear that the suffering, to see the suffering that would come upon my father. It's the moment of truth. Does Joseph hold a grudge or will he choose mercy? Will he insist on punishing his already destroyed brothers for their crimes? How will he respond to these broken men, particularly in light of the change he has seen in Judah? So let's read together. Chapter 45, verse 1. This is a longer chunk. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all who stood by. And he cried out, send everyone away from me. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed they were at his presence. No joke, right? And then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve your life. For the famine that has been in this land two years, and there are five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God sent me before you for a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall settle in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children as well as your flocks and herds, all that you have. I will provide for you there since there are five more years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have will not come to poverty. And now your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my own mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father how greatly I am honored in Egypt and all that you have seen. So hurry and bring back my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept while Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Mercy. I've been reading a book about mercy lately, and frankly, it's really been rubbing me the wrong way. By which, of course, I mean it's been convicting me quite badly. <laughs> the author says, mercy, extended both to self and to others, buys us a shot at a warm and generous heart, which is the greatest prize of all. Do you want this, a warm and generous heart? Or do you want to be right? And the author's response, and I love this. Can I get back to you on that? Because me too. Me too. That's the choice, isn't it? Especially when you know you have been wronged. To extend mercy and forgiveness and kindness or be right. And just live there, basking in your rightness. All the while, your heart gets harder. But Joseph chose mercy. He chose forgiveness, and thereby he made a clean break with the past, both for himself and for his brothers. That gift of mercy and forgiveness that he bestowed upon his brothers, it, it opened up a future for them in ways they previously thought were impossible, right? Because before mercy, the future was a dark tunnel. It was fixed. There was no way forward. Just keep Joseph alive and live out our days under the weight of the guilt from our sin. But no talk of dreams. No talk of the promise because guilt restricts. Guilt chokes. It blocks. But forgiveness, it frees. Both for the victim and the perpetrator. God dreams liberate. Joseph it's like he unlocked the cage of hopelessness and shame and guilt, and he invited his brothers out of the cage into the clean, fresh air of mercy. 
to finally, after all this time, embrace the dream that God had for their family, to be fruitful, to become a nation so that they could be a light to all the nations that all people could come and know, come to know and love God the way God knows and loves them. The dream. The dream gives life. The dream brings salvation and restoration and hope for the broken creatures, mired in our sin, weighed down by our guilt and our grudges. The dream of God, embodied by obedient people like Joseph and acted out through people's imaginations, can and will breathe new life into our lives. Because those good purposes of God expressed through his dream and acted out as his people can negate the past, it can redefine your present, and it can open up your future. That is what happened for Joseph and his sin-sick family. That broken past of violence and hate was negated. Their present was wholly redefined as they escaped the famine, and their future was opened that they could grow into the nation that God wanted them to be. And so the story, the epilogue, I suppose, the brothers do what Joseph asked. They go back and they bring Jacob along with their entire family to Egypt and they live in Goshen. But Jacob is super old at this point and apparently doesn't handle the trip real well. And so he gets there and not long after, Jacob dies. The patriarch, he dies, right? And as people might know, when a parent dies, sometimes it can stir the pot with the siblings, right? The brothers fear, now that dad's gone, Joseph has no reason to continue to be merciful to us. And so they said this, realizing, this is chapter 50, realizing their father was dead. Joseph's brother said, what if Joseph still bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? So they approached Joseph, still sly, saying, your brother, or your father gave us this instruction before he died. Say to Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong they did in harming you. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of us, your servants, before your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him and said, we are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to harm me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. And in this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. What you intended for harm, God intended for good. Now let's pause for a second because we stand at the top of a very slippery slope, do we not? As we try to put to words... God's sovereignty, God's power. Because too many times in our attempts to explain God's sovereignty, the fact that God's in charge, we try to explain the difficult, the painful, the devastating, like the miscarriage or the untimely death or the illness or the victim of a crime or abuse. We, with good intentions, no doubt, tell the suffering victim, oh, not to worry, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So come on, God's got a plan all along. It's okay. Now, none of that is wrong exactly, but do you remember Dinah? 
Remember the story of Dinah, how she was brutally ravaged and held captured by her attacker? And imagine saying to her as she's bleeding on the floor, buck up, kiddo, God's got a plan. He had something good in mind all along, so don't you worry. Uh, no, you wouldn't. Because that response does not take seriously the problem of evil. You see what I'm saying? Evil is a big deal. And what Walter Brueggemann, he calls it the problem of certitude. Certitude alone, believing that, oh, God is sovereign, everything's fine, alone leads to romanticism. And then, for we only know the victory, and we imagine we are immune from the battle. And let me be clear. We're never immune from the battle, are we? From the hurt and the wounds and the, the carnage of this embodied life, we don't get a free pass on that. And yet, and yet, there is always a yet with the gospel. And yet, the tomb is empty. And so this idea of just realism, like, oh, life is just hard, deal with it type perspective, it's unfaithful too because it leads to despair because then you only know the danger, but you forget the outcome. And the outcome is resurrection. It is always resurrection. And so how can we know, what can we know about God's sovereignty and all of this stuff of life, the mess and the hurt and the pain and the brokenness? What did Joseph know and declare to his brothers? Well, we can know this. God is good. His purposes are good. They are for our good and for redemption and for restoration and for salvation. We know that God has given us freedom because love requires freedom, right? But even our freedom cannot thwart God's good purposes. God can take any and all the brokenness and he can use it for good for his purposes because nothing is wasted. Nothing is ever wasted. God is just that good. At redemption. Well, it was about a year ago. I had the profound privilege of leading the funeral service for Joy Radzik. Many of you were there. She was a dear saint of the church. And a few weeks before her death, I visited her in the hospital. And she was so frail and she was so weak. And she was truly longing to enter into rest with her Savior, Jesus. And she didn't understand why she was alive. She kept saying that. Like, I just don't understand why I keep waking up in the morning. But then she said, with crystal clear conviction in her voice. But nothing's wasted, Pastor. Nothing's wasted. And she went on to tell me how every morning when she disappointedly wakes up and finds herself to be still alive, she would pray for her children, for her grandchildren, for her church, for her neighbors, for her nurses. She was praying that they might come to know and love God the way God knows and loves them. And as she's speaking to me, the pastor, right, I'm supposed to be bringing the comfort here, I'm like crying. Tears are streaming down my face because Jack was super little at that point, and I was really struggling to juggle it, juggle it all. Like I had a teeny baby, I had a really active three-year-old, I had this vibrant congregation, and y'all got needs sometimes. And I had been feeling kind of sorry for myself uh, because I was carrying this load, almost bitter, about the countless hours I was spending to get Jack to do basic human things like sleep. <laughs> and I felt like I was being wasted. And then Joy's words, nothing is wasted. 
Nothing is wasted. Joy knew something that I did not know or had at least forgotten in my stupor of no sleep. And Joseph knew it too. That true trust in the goodness and the trustworthiness of God's good purposes does not lead to just abdicating trust, like just sit on your hands, wait for God to move, but it leads to vocation. True trust in God's purposes leads us to vocation. And vocation, simply put, is that place to which God calls us where the world's deep hunger and our greatest passion meet. That is our vocation. Joseph had found it, just had joy had found it, her vocation of prayer in the midst of her suffering. And Joseph had found it. He knew that nothing had been wasted, not that time with Potiphar, not that time in the prison. None of it had been wasted. And he embraced his vocation as the savior of his family, trusting the good promises of God and trusting the dream of God to come to fulfillment. Thus ends the beginning, the end of Genesis. And it ends with Joseph the dreamer in a coffin in Egypt. He died as he waited. He waited for the fulfillment of God's promise, but he died in hope. As he dies, Joseph says, I am about to die, but God will surely come to you and he will bring you out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Joseph made the Israelites swear, when God comes to you, you shall carry my bones from here. And so he died in hope, in full trust that God, the giver of dreams, the maker of the promise, the redeemer could and would do what he said, heal creation and heal us through his family, through the family of Abraham, through his son, ultimately Jesus. And so too we wait And sometimes it feels like we're waiting in a coffin for God's ultimate redemption. But we don't wait passively, do we? We wait actively, leaning into our God-given vocation to be God's people at home and at school and at work. And we wait in full trust of the good purposes of God, remembering that nothing is wasted. God is just that good at redemption. Well, today we have the privilege of receiving communion. So when we receive these sacred elements, the bread and the juice, we are reminded of God's promise kept. That redemption would come through the family of Abraham, and it did through Jesus. And so as we wait for that redemption to come in its fullness, we celebrate the Eucharist that meal of thanksgiving as a declaration of trust in God's good purposes, bringing forth good from the broken, bringing forth life from death. Salvation comes through the very brokenness of Jesus' body. May it be so. If our uh, servers could come forward in the worship team. Hear these words that you have heard so many times. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God. Dear God, we thank you for your word.
thank you for the story of Genesis, the story of your promise, your promise made, your promise delayed in so many ways, but your persistent faithfulness through it all. And Lord, thank you for the good word today, that nothing is ever wasted, that because of the sovereignty of your good purposes, Lord, you take our brokenness, all of our pieces scattered about, and you can bring forth life from death. You can bring forth beauty from our ashes. Nothing is ever wasted. And so may we take that truth and walk from this place boldly and empowered to not just advocate advocate our role, to sit idly by and let you do your thing, God, but rather to embrace our vocation, our call to join you in your good work of redemption. Lord, open our eyes that we might see the ways in which we can participate in your good mission. Thank you, God, that you are so very good. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and by the power of the Spirit, amen. Would you stand and receive the benediction? Beloved, God's church, may you go from this place and walk in full trust of God's good purposes recognizing that nothing is ever wasted. Go in action and go in peace.